The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? We doing good? Good. So I feel the need to confess to each of you just where I'm at spiritually at the moment and put some context um, on what I'm about to share. This week has probably been the most difficult week of preparation for a sermon that I've ever experienced. This is, as I began to dig through this text, this is just a very, it's a weighty text, so there's some bold claims found in here. There's a lot of uh, disagreements on what certain words mean and what James is trying to convey. And so I literally, my wife has asked me via text sometimes, like, how's it going? And I send her back this emoji of this guy banging his head against the wall. Like, that's how I felt, just a difficult time of preparation. And so I went to bed last night struggling, and I went to bed last night wrestling through how I was going to prepare this sermon. Well, what I do, let you in on my preparation I manuscript my sermons, so I write out word for word what I'm going to preach to you. I try to carefully think through what I'm going to say and how I'm going to deliver it. Well, about 45 minutes ago, I go to send my notes from my laptop to my iPad to prepare to come up here and preach, and I lost all of my notes. So not only am I struggling on how I'm going to preach this sermon, I literally lost my entire sermon about 45 minutes ago. So let you in on my heart. This guy standing before you is preaching in fear and trembling this morning. Like I am, I am terrified to just be honest because this is such a weighty text. It's a difficult text. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna have some fun. There's the slide guy, Garrett, you're off the hook today. What we're gonna do is we're literally gonna open up our Bibles um, and we are going to study God's word, and it's going to be a great time. And to be completely honest, I, I was telling Kyle as I was preparing to come up here this morning, like, there's, there is a weight that comes with this pulpit, and I think there's a weight that comes with any pulpit. Preaching the word of God is a, a weighty task, um, and, and something that we should never take lightly, but preaching behind the pulpit at Mars Hill is terrifying. Because you're preaching in the shadows of guys like Jack Hester and Kyle Bashirs, who, in my opinion, are some of the greatest teachers of all times. And so here you are, a young lad trying to come up and preach in the shadows of these guys, these men, and it's terrifying. And so I think this idol of trying to preach this perfect sermon has just become shattering down. Um, And so I am living out this text. Are any of you suffering? Let him pray. I've prayed more this morning than I have in a long time. And so let's recap. Let's refresh our memory on the book of James. What have we learned this far? We are about done. We're in James chapter 5, looking at verses 13 through 18 is where we're going to be camped out. Next week, we're looking at verses 19 through 20. And so we're coming to a close on our study. So we've really journeyed through this. We've learned quite a bit. And so James is writing to the 12 tribes in dispersion. So simply put, he's writing to the church who've been dispersed. So there's suffering that's involved within the life of these saints. And so James starts his letter off, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we see right off the bat that James is writing to an audience who's encountering trials, who's encountering sufferings. They're going through it. And James says, in the midst of this, count it all joy. Why? Because we ultimately see that trials result in our good. And so it's leading to us becoming perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in the midst of going through it, in the midst of trials, we as believers can find joy. Why? Because we know that it's ultimately going to result in our good. And so then as he begins to journey through this, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it'll be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so we see this promise of like, okay, you're going through trials. We know end result, this is gonna result in our good, but in the midst of it, you may be asking why, and you can go to God who graciously gives wisdom to all. And so you see this invitation, but then you begin to journey through this book of James and you see faith without works is dead and he's calling us to action, to in the midst of these sufferings, in the midst of these trials, to remain faithful, to remain obedient, to walk in obedience to the Lord. And so a couple weeks ago, James, in the beginning of James chapter five, he gives this stern rebuke to the rich. And he says this in James chapter five, verse one, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And so he's saying, okay, rich person, non-believer, weep and how get sad because the end result for your life is not going to be good. So you may have the best life that you could possibly have now. You can cut corners, you can acquire wealth, you can hoard all of these things, but one day things aren't gonna go well for you. And so James gives this stern rebuke, this stern warning to the rich non-believer. But then immediately following that, he directs his attention to the saints. And he says this in verse seven, if you look down in your Bibles, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And so he's saying, okay, saints, you're going through it, you're suffering, but be patient. One day things will get better for you. And so keep your eyes on the prize, keep running the race, keep walking in obedience because one day it's gonna be worth it. And so with that, as we're waiting, as we're waiting on the return of the Lord, James says, do not grumble against one another. So we have this idea that we're on the same team, we're the church, we're the body of Christ. And so it would be foolish for us as we're longing for the return of the Lord, as we're longing for heaven, where we're gonna be with one another in the presence of the Lord, worshiping him forever, to grumble against one another. That's just foolish. So don't grumble against one another. And then he also tells us to look to the saints, to the prophets who've gone before us. And so find encouragement by their example. They pressed on, they remained faithful in the midst of trials, in the midst of sufferings. And one day it got better for them. The sobering reality, Job, for example, he's not still suffering, fair? That'd be crazy if he was, he would be very, very old. And so things ultimately one day got better for Job. Paul is not still suffering. One day things got better for him. James, the saints, 
one day this is gonna end, the Lord is gonna return and we're gonna be with him for eternity. Things will get better for us if our faith resides in Christ. And so this should compel us towards obedience and this should compel us towards joy. And so in our passage today, James presents us essentially three questions. Are you suffering? Are you cheerful? And then are you sick? And so let's go ahead and dive into this passage and we're gonna unpack this verse by verse. It says this, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So let's look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And so this word for suffering is a very broad word. It's not one, he's not honing in on one particular type of suffering. So this could be any type of misfortune, any type of calamity, whether that be physical or financial or mental, whatever it may be, are you suffering? And if the answer is yes to that question, then our response must be what? To pray, let him pray. And so what an incredible invitation. When things go bad, when you're in the midst of it, we pray. And so going back to James chapter one, we find joy in the midst of trials because we know that it's ultimately going to one day end good for us. It's sanctifying us. And now in the midst of it, we have the invitation to go to God in prayer in the midst of our suffering. So we don't have to suffer alone. We can go to God in the midst of these trials, asking him to comfort us and lead us. And then he continues on, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And so on the opposite spectrum, is anyone suffering? Okay, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Is things going well for you? Let him sing praises. Let him sing praises to God. And so James in chapter one says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. And so any good gift, anything that would prompt up, stir up joy or stir up cheerfulness in our hearts is a gift from God. And so therefore we rightly sing praises to him. Is anyone among you suffering? Go to God in prayer. Is anyone cheerful? Go to God in song, in prayer, in praise. And so I think if you're honest, when we go through suffering, there's a temptation to legitimately pray because you're broken, you're empty. God, how in the world am I gonna preach this sermon today? I need your help. But on the flip side, I think when things are cheerful, when things are going well, there's a temptation for us to not go to God. We become dependent upon ourselves. We think that we can control our own circumstances. Things are going well right now. I don't need you, God. And so, oh, the height of arrogance in any situation to say, no, I'm not going to God. 
It's arrogant, it's foolish in the midst of trials to shake your fist at God and say, how dare you? It's arrogant and foolish in the midst of trials to say, no, I'm gonna figure this out myself and I'm gonna do it myself. But it's humble and it's right for us to go to God in prayer in the midst of sufferings. And it's humble and it's right for us to sing praises to God when things are going well. And that, that's really essentially the summary of our life. Things are, if you asked, if I walked by you and said, hey, how you doing? You would either say, man, things are going well right now. Or, man, I'm really struggling. Those are typically in some form or fashion the responses you're gonna get. So you're either suffering or you're either cheerful. And what verse 13 tells us is, in all circumstances, go to God. And so may that be the case for us. Let's continue reading. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so this is where things get maybe a little dicey. There's, there's some confusion over what this word sick means. It's a very, not a broad word, but it specifically means uh, to be weak or powerless or physically bedridden. Um, and so is anyone among you weak? Is anyone among you broken? Is anyone among you powerless? And when you do a word study, when you look at this word in its use throughout scripture, there is a physical weakness that comes with that. So uh, an example of this would be Lazarus. Right before him passing away that first time, uh, Mary goes to Jesus and says, the one in whom you love is sick, is this word, um, He's feeble, he's weak, he's bedridden. But there's also times in scripture where Paul considers himself weak. And so this, there's this spiritual weakness. And so some commentators are on a disagreement of what James is saying here. And I think it plays a vital role of the direction we go. Some would say, one, is anyone among you sick physically or anyone among you physically weak and others would say, is anyone among you spiritually weak? And that, that, that's very important for us as we journey along. I would fall in the camp and I would agree with the idea that this is a physical weakness. And so is anyone among you physically weak? Is anyone among you physically sick, bedridden, sick? And if that's the case, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so the latter half of verse 15, I think gives us some context as to why this person is sick. And so I, I wanna uh, tread carefully here, but there are sicknesses, a lot of commentators would agree that there are sicknesses they should agree because the Bible teaches us this. There are sicknesses in scripture that are a result of sin. And so 1 Corinthians 11, I think that's on the screen. You may have to do some digging. 1 Corinthians 11 gives us an example of this. Um, in light of communion, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy, unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. 
And so we see in scripture that there are times that as a result of sin, sickness comes. And so there's a possibility that that could be what this person is experiencing here in this text, is that their sickness is a result of sin in their life. And so therefore they're convicted of this sin and they're calling the elders to come and pray over them. Now, that being said, I think we have to clarify when you look at the life of Job, his friends accuse him of being guilty of sin, but he wasn't, yet he remained steadfast. You look at, uh, I think it's John chapter nine, when the disciples go to Jesus and ask why the blind man is blind, um, who sinned here? And uh, Jesus responds, no one has sinned, but this uh, blindness is ultimately there to display the glory and the power of God. And so not every sickness that we encounter is a result of sin. In fact, probably the vast majority of our sicknesses aren't a result of specific sins. But that being said, there are in fact cases where sickness is a result of sin. And that could be the direction that James is going here. But nonetheless, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil, in the name of the Lord. There's a few things that I want us to point out here in terms of this. First being um, who elders are. James isn't telling us to call the elderly in the church to come and pray for him. So he's not saying anyone who can go to Golden Corral and get a discount, go and pray for them. He's more along the lines, this is a position of authority within the church. And so these are are men who have been called to govern and rule uh, and uh, maybe serve the church in a leadership capacity, maybe a better way to uh, describe that. So you see uh, 1 Timothy chapter three, uh, Paul giving Timothy parameters and guidelines of what the character of an overseer or a pastor uh, or an elder looks like. You see it in Titus 1. And so this, these terms pastor, these terms elders, overseers, all of these are synonymous within scripture. And so these are leaders within the church. And so Mars Hill has elders who oversee this local body of believers, this local congregation. So we, they're actually meeting right now during this service. And so we have Stephen Booker. He's Uh, what we would call a lay elder. So he's not a pastoral paid person, but he's a counselor who's serving the body in that capacity, Stephen Booker. We have Troy Bowman, same thing. Brady King, we have Brad Hill, Jake Beaton, Justin McGeehee, myself, Mark Powell. I, I think that's all, Rusty Roberts. And so these are men who've been called by God to lead us as a local body. And so James is saying, call him. And so I want us to also note that this is elders plural. And so this isn't the responsibility of one particular person going and doing this. And so I think there's a temptation, particularly here in the South, to have this idea that one man leads and rules over this church. That's not what we see here in scripture. And so I think it would be unhealthy and it's unfair for us to place on Jack the expectation to care for and serve and lead every particular person in this body. It's an unfair expectation for us to place on one man. And so we see here elders, plural, men, 
plural called here. And then also I want us to note that it says, let who call the elders of the church? It says, let him. And so is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church. And so this is a responsibility on the one who is sick. And I think this is helpful because I think at times, maybe some of us have developed a bitterness or frustration towards pastors in the church because they, you went to the hospital or you were sick or something went on in your life and the pastor didn't know about it. He was unaware of it. And so you develop this, this frustration towards him because he didn't know. How unloving of him, how uncaring. He should have known what was going on in our life. But what we see here is the one who is sick goes, calls the elders. And I know what some of you are thinking, how did he have a phone back then? So this guy didn't have iPhone X or a flip phone. He didn't have a razor. This would have been a summoning, a calling, bringing, hey, bring the elders here. I need help. And so this is a beautiful picture of community for us. Is this, I have a need, I'm struggling, I need help. Elders come, pray for me. And so let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I know what some of you mamas are thinking. You're nudging your husband saying, see, this is the biblical evidence that essential oils are a good thing. (laughs) Maybe. So I don't think James is telling the elders to take their diffuser and plug it in next to the bed and have lavender spraying out next to the sixth person. I don't think that's the context here. That being said, there are, when you look at scripture, there are health benefits, medical benefits that come from oil. So you see the story of the good Samaritan where he goes and cares for the one who was beaten and flogged and he applies oils and wines to the wounds. And so there are health benefits that came from oil during this time. But I think this is more of a symbolic thing. And so when you look at anointing throughout scripture, this was a symbol of God consecrating, setting apart people for his work. And so I believe that anointing with oil is attended here to symbolize that this person is being set apart for God's special attention in prayer. And so this is a symbol of God's work. Their healing does not come from this oil. That's something that we have to understand is that this healing isn't from the oil. Rather, it comes from God. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so this is a weighty, strong verse. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is probably the verse that I struggled with the most. Because what a strong command, or what a strong promise. This, these words will, like this is, this is strong. And I think we have to discern what this prayer of faith is before we go any further. The prayer of faith ultimately is one of submission to the will of God. 
And so what we have to understand is that a, a prayer of faith is not this idea of, I'm gonna go to God and I'm gonna will him into my plan. And so if I pray the right words, then somehow I'm gonna get him onto my agenda. That's not what we see here. God is sovereign over all. He is the ruler over all. And so who would we be to think that we can manipulate him into our own plan? And so the prayer of faith is ultimately one of submission to the will of God. I'm submitting to God's will. James is going to refer to the life of Elijah in a few verses. And I think Elijah displays this perfectly for us. So Elijah was the, the superman, in a sense, of the Old Testament. But when you look at his life, these things that he did were ultimately walking in obedience to God's will. And so God tells him, go back to Israel. I'm going to make it rain. And so you see these promises of God's leading him. And in that, he's praying and God's answering and so the prayer of faith is one of submission to the will of God. And so the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so if this sickness is a result of sin and this man is calling the elders, hey, come pray for me. I'm struggling here. There's this promise of pray for them, lay hands on them, pray for them, and he will be healed, and he will be raised up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so there's this tension, I think, for all of us that we read this, and then we're mindful of passages in the Bible or life experiences where we pray for something, and God doesn't answer the way that we wanted it to. So I think about Paul in 2 Corinthians, I believe chapter 10 or 12, where he has this thorn in his flesh, this, uh, this struggle that he's going through, this physical ailment, and he's praying to God. He pleads to God three different times for him to remove this thorn. And does God do it? No, he he leaves it and says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power will be made perfect in your weakness. And so we can't have this idea that every time, anytime we experience a sickness, then we gotta go to the elders, the elders are gonna pray and then they're gonna be healed and they're gonna be raised. If that's the case, then there will be no dead people in the church from this point on. At some point, death is certain and we're gonna face it. But where death is certain, hope is all the more certain. So I think there is some spiritual promise found in this verse is that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. This word save has physical promise, but it also has spiritual. So James uses this word several different times. And every time he uses it, there's a spiritual implication to it. So James chapter one, the implanted word, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. And then James in chapter two is talking about this faith without works. And he asks the question, can that faith save you? And so I think there is a legitimate spiritual promise here is that even if there is not this promised physical healing, there is an eternal hope that we have in Christ. And so where death is certain, our hope is all the more sure. 
And so God will one day raise us up. Our sins will be forgiven. We will be, our salvation will be brought to completion. And we cling to that hope and we know it is true because of our hope in the gospel. So we know that God is quick to forgive because of the cross. And we know he has the power to raise us up because of the empty tomb. And so our hope is certain. And so this brother who's struggling, come to the elders, pray. And we have hope that God is quick to forgive. He is quick to heal in this capacity. And so if our prayers possess this power and there's this promise that God is quick to forgive, then we as the church should live out verse 16. Therefore, if this is true, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so what a beautiful invitation for each and every one of us. For as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who have placed our faith in the cross, there should be a hatred towards sin. We should hate it. It should disgust us. If uh, we're continually walking in this sin, then there should be no joy in our life. I can think back to particular seasons in my life where I'm a professing believer and I'm what I feel like trapped in sin. And that was the darkest seasons of my life, just the most joyless seasons. I couldn't sleep. I didn't wanna find any, it was just a miserable season in our life. So as believers, we should hate sin. And we should want to put that to death. And this promise that God is quick to forgive should spur us on. Okay, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's an invitation for us as the church to combat sin together. And so church, are there men, are there women in your life that you can fight against sin together? Are there people, are you plugged in to where you can confess your sins to one another? It's vitally important, but the story doesn't end at confession alone. If all we do is confess and we do not pray, then we're missing it. So confess your sins one to another. Healed. And so church, the main point of this passage is to call us to a life of prayer. And so may we be a body of believers who pray personally. Anyone among you suffering, let him pray. May we be a people who pray collectively, calling the elders in particular moments, praying over them, confessing sin to one another and praying for one another that you may be healed. Great power in prayer. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so this isn't the prayer of a righteous person in regards to the prayer of a person who has never committed sin in his life. No, the prayer of a righteous person, one whose faith resides in Christ and his righteousness has been extended to you. May us as believers who have received the righteousness of Christ, our prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so this is where I struggled as I read these bold commands and this call to prayer, but yet there's doubt in my mind. Can prayer really work? I've been praying for a long time for particular things. 
and I've yet to see an answer. And so prayer is reliable. Is prayers reliable? And this is what I've been struggling with, just being very honest and very transparent. And so as a result, I think there's the sobering reality is that the story's not over yet. God's timing is not our timing, and so we press on in prayer, praying for one another, fighting against sin, living this life of obedience. But I think James anticipates some skepticism in some of our hearts because of the example that he gives us in verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. When you go and dig into the life of Elijah, you would truly be blown away. And I'm really excited about next week because what we're gonna do is when you look at the life of Elijah, what it does, the life of Elijah really links this week's passage with next week's passage and brings it together perfectly because you see in Elijah's life, all of these incredible things being done. So Elijah prays, prophesies that rain is not gonna come. And that's the case. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And this wasn't something out of the whim, just something that he wanted to do. It wasn't him saying, I hate rain, and so I'm gonna pray that God makes it not rain. No, this was out of obedience to the will of God, praying for this. And we see it come true. And so then you see him being led by God to go, and he is led to a brook and is fed by ravens. And then you see him healing a young man, literally, in a sense, living out this very text, laying over this young boy, the widow who's with him at the time. I encourage you, go back and read the story. The widow at this time that's with him during this time, her son becomes sick, and she looks to Elijah. She's like, what's going on? Have you brought me with you to expose these sins of my past? And so Elijah pleads to the Lord, lays on him three times, um, and then the Lord essentially heals him. So you see this being displayed through the life of Elijah. And then Elijah goes back, taunts the prophets of Baal, mocks them, scolds them, makes them look foolish, and then destroys them. And then the Lord brings back this rain. All of these things that Elijah's being a part of, but then you see essentially... Jezebel saying, I'm gonna kill you, and he flees. So after God does all of these incredible things, you think that he has this faith to, to press on, but yet he wonders. And so next week, my brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I'm excited about us looking at this comparison between the two. But nonetheless, Elijah was just a regular old dude, just like us. There's nothing special about him. He's just a man walking in obedience to the Lord, praying fervently. And so this comforts us in the midst of our skepticism, in the midst of our doubts. Just a regular old guy like us, Elijah, God uses And so church, may we be a people who pray. May we be a people who pray fervently. 
May we be a people who confess our sins to one another. May we people be a people who hate sin, who love righteousness, and who fight sin together, who pray fervently for the holiness of one another. May the Holy Spirit rid us of any selfishness that resides in our own hearts. And may we be a people who completely and totally rely on the Lord in any and all circumstances. And so I want to read this text again, and we'll close in prayer. Is anyone among you suffering Mars Hill? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And so church, let's, let's do this as we close. Let's take a few minutes to devote ourselves to prayer as a collective body. This is, there's no structure to this. And so what I want us to do, there, there's room maybe for us to spread out a little bit. Just find a place for you to get along. And is anyone among you surf, suffering? Is anyone among you surfing? No, we're in a church. That's not true. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful. Let him sing praises. And so maybe you're suffering. Maybe you're going through it. Maybe you're struggling with sin and you need to find somebody to confess that to, to wrestle through that with you. I encourage you, don't let that hinder you. May you confess that. So with no songs, let us just spend a few moments praying alone. And if there's anyone that you, if any of you want prayer, find someone close to you and we'll pray through that. So just spend a few moments praying and then I'll close this out.
Father, we love you. And God, we thank you for the cross. And God, we confess that probably many of us in here are suffering. We are struggling. We are going through it. And so God, I pray for the hearts of any in here who have been running from you, who don't feel the need to to come to you in prayer. Holy Spirit, I pray that you convict them and that you draw them back to you. God, may we be a people who who pray and who run to you in any and all circumstances. Father, may we be a people who hate sin. God, it was our very sin that nailed you to the cross. But God, we find the hope of the gospel is that, Jesus, you didn't stay on the cross. The tomb did not stay empty. And so God, we rejoice in that. And so, God, we have an eternal hope because of you, and we praise you because of that. And so, Holy Spirit, comfort us in the midst of trials. Provide us a supernatural joy in the midst of our suffering. And, God, may we be a people who confess our sin quick. And, God, may we be a people who pray for one another. Rid us of any judgment. Rid us of the, of the fear to confess. And comfort us because of the promise that you will be quick to forgive. And so God, we love you. And God, we thank you. And may we be doers of the word, not hearers only. But may we be faithfully obedient to your word here. And so God, it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.